episode 206. Turns out high deductible plans don't drive high quality, cost effective healthcare. Today, I speak with Ashok Subramanian, CEO and founder over at Centivo. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. There was great hope for consumerism by pushing the burden onto patients or employees to find high quality care at a fair price. We assumed that healthcare delivery would level up. But anyone seeking to validate this hypothesis would be pretty hard pressed to claim any sort of broad stroke success beyond cost shifting by brute force. It turns out that providers wield a lot of influence. And if we want to create high value healthcare, i.e., high quality at a fair price, we need to contemplate the recommendations that providers are making. These recommendations especially matter because a patient's entry point into the health system, where they go first, can make all the difference. Today, I speak with Ashok Subramanian, CEO and founder of Centivo, a new kind of self funded health plan. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Ashok. Thank you, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. Just some background as we get into this conversation. There was a study, or is a study by Zach Cooper from Yale, that talks about, among other things, the importance of where, in other words, the entry point that a patient enters the health system. How important this entry point is if you want to control the costs and the waste and also lift quality. How have you seen this play out, Ashok? Yeah, Stacey, it's a great question and a really important topic for anyone studying or operating kind of in the healthcare space today. We've been on this journey for the past 20 years with a hope that giving consumers more financial quote-unquote skin in the game and tools and resources to help them navigate that would help control cost. And the reality is what Zach Cooper and others have started to show is that there's more data now that we've ever had which is broad open access, on-demand healthcare, simply doesn't work. There's too much variation in cost and quality. Employees and people don't have the ability to really make those sorts of quote-unquote shopping decisions in an area as complex and as emotional as healthcare. You know, what Professor Cooper and others have pointed out is that what people really do do is they listen to their provider. They listen to their doctor. They listen to their primary care physician. So a big part of what we see has to start to evolve is moving away from a blunt instrument of here's a high deductible, good luck, and moving to a place where people are encouraged and have the right incentives to build a trusted relationship inside the healthcare system, typically through a primary care physician, and to listen to their advice and to put much more of an emphasis on the primary care physician and that care team being the gateway and the navigator through the care system, as opposed to putting that burden on the employee, him or herself. 
you had mentioned that a high deductible plan is, is kind of a blunt instrument. And I'm inferring what you mean by that is it's kind of like you throw the patient, the employee into the ocean and say, good luck finding the highest quality care. Yes, Stacy, that's exactly right. And I'll admit that I've evolved in my own thinking. You know, 10 years ago, as we were starting our private exchange business, one of the things we talked about was creating transparency around pricing would drive people into high deductible plans. And by driving people into high deductible plans, that people would become more sensitive to the cost of care. There is obviously some truth to that. But the reality is, people aren't very good at trying to discern low value care from high value care. And it's sort of obvious why, because it's a complicated area. What we've learned over time is that there are very shoppable, electable procedures. Lower limb MRIs is a great example. Completely planned, completely elective, time to shop around, and 98.5% of the time, nobody does. The reality is high deductibles aren't working. People have no idea, you know, what's good care versus bad care. People tend to avoid care in general. And then when people show up for care, they don't know how much things cost. And there's a bunch of things that just need to happen to clean up that part of the process. I think part two of what you're saying is that if a healthcare provider says, oh, go over there for the MRI, the patient will do so without necessarily questioning why, you know, why the recommendation is being made or is that in fact the best place? I mean, that's a pretty awkward position. I can see why, you know, if you're a patient, you know, you just sort of assume that you're being sent to the place that has the special MRI or something. Yes, yeah, Stacey, it's a really interesting point and an important point because just step back for a moment. If we all, so for those of us who are benefits professionals on this call, we've helped create a whole industry of services and products that are basically meant to ask a patient to question the guidance and advice they are getting from the trusted expert that they have designated for him or herself and their families, their doctor. And the reality is, Number one, people aren't going to do that because they've made that choice. If they have a doctor, they've made a choice that they think they're good and they trust them. And number two, it's an awfully awkward conversation, as you just said, to challenge that person when there's a complete asymmetry in information between the doctor and the patient. So the reality is what we do need to do is a much better job of, number one, making sure people do have primary care physicians. That's something that's really changed in this country over the last 25 years. And number two, that we are doing the best we can to make sure that people have really good physicians, those physicians that are delivering great cost of care, great quality, great experience, refer and prescribe the right way. Yeah. And you had mentioned that the PCP should be the gateway into the healthcare system. How do you see that playing out? Because obviously that puts, you know, PCPs are burdened already. And the cost of care is not transparent. I mean, it's not even transparent. Uh, you know, there's plenty of, of literature out there with, which shows that if you quiz a doctor <laughs> on how much certain procedures or, or care costs, they have no idea. A lot of the solution that we're talking about here does depend on having a PCPs at all. <laughs> and then number two, having PCPs which are well equipped to serve in this role. Yeah, Stacey, these are all good questions, and uh, it's a big part of why healthcare is so tricky. So I would, I would split it into two parts. The first part is we have tried to bring data and transparency and arm 
the person, the consumer, the end user. Basically, the idea was how do we have the demand side of the equation have more skin in the game? That hasn't worked for the reasons we've talked about. It doesn't mean that they should have no skin in the game, but people can only control things that they can actually control. And we've asked people to try to change behaviors of things that they really can't control. So the first part is moving more of the onus onto, to your point, the provider, the PCP. And then the second point is, well, how do you do that? It's really taking a lot of what we've tried to do, which is create more data, create more transparency, create metrics around provider quality, deeper understanding around total cost of care, but moving the place where that data gets operationalized and executed on to that PCP. So completely right, 100%. PCPs don't know. So many of their relationships are driven by historical behavior, people they know, convenience to the employee, if they take insurance or not. We need to move that. Like in so many other industries, we have moved from what has happened historically just as a matter of accident to big data, analytically driven models. That's exactly where we need to move those things. And it's a whole lot easier to do that with PCPs that manage, you know, a thousand or more patients at a time than it is to do that one consumer at a time. From a model standpoint, is this something that if I'm a PCP, I can decide that I would like to assume? Because obviously, as you're talking about this is all very dependent on having data and having this cost information. So, you know, from just at a systemic level, how does this begin to happen? Yeah. So, Stacey, there's sort of three parts of it. The first part is there is no single awesome source of data. Rule number one is how do we work with multiple entities that are out there? How do we pull a data set together that really makes sense for a commercial population? And how do you do it on a market-by-market basis? So we're not serving the Medicare population. There's a lot of Medicare data that's available. And so we can pull that data. And there's a real role and value to that in terms of utilization and practice patterns. Medicare data, though, has holes. Medicare data doesn't speak to price differentials that are in place in the commercial market. Medicare data doesn't speak to certain procedures that are more prevalent in the commercial market than in the Medicare market. Maternity is an obvious example. You have to pull other data sets together. So step number one is playing that role, being the entity to have that data and aggregate it in a way that's useful. The second part is then to use that and find the PCPs that want to play this role. You made a very important point. Not every primary care practice is equipped to do this, wants to do this, is ready to do this. So a big part of what we do on behalf of employers is go to locate those practices, bring to them the data that we talked about, and basically say, we want you to be part of the solution. We want to partner with you to help employers better serve their employees when it comes to affordability, when it comes to quality, and when it comes to member experience. There are things that we do from a contract perspective, from a financial perspective, from a support perspective to do that, but it all starts with locating those PCPs amplifying the great work they're already doing and arming them with the tools and resources to enable them to do this important work. 
So you had mentioned the first part of this is pulling data sets together. And as everybody knows, one of the reasons why everyone gravitates to Medicare data is because Medicare data is readily available, whereas commercial data is siloed all over the place. And Zach Cooper, he also, as part of that study that was recently released, he had managed to aggregate a lot of commercial data sets. So for the first time, compare what was going on on the commercial side to what was going on the Medicare side and actually found a whole lot of difference. You know, like the poster child for, which was somewhere in Colorado, for Medicare awesomeness, value, cost and quality, was actually one of the worst places if you looked at those same metrics from a commercial standpoint. Are there any lessons or findings which are important? Because if you compare the commercial and the Medicare, you don't necessarily get the same answer. Yes. Stacey, at a high level, I think what's important is the commercial population is obviously very heterogeneous. So you have 18-year-olds, you have 65-year-olds, you have everything in between, you have families, you have individuals, you have healthier people, you have people who are at risk, and you have sicker people. And so thinking about those segments one at a time is very important. As we look at how do you take the data and turn that into insights and action for the commercial population, for us, it really is focusing on the barbell, if you will. On the left side of that barbell is how do you have a great network of high-performing primary care practices? Every person needs to have a trusted partner as little or as often as they need so that when something strikes, you know where to go. And you know that you're not going to be going to the emergency room for primary care. You're not going to be randomly looking at things online. Not that those aren't valuable in their own right, but you need to have a clinical partner if something happens. And that's for a good chunk of the population, let's call it 60 to 70%. The other part of the population is where a lot of today's utilization is. And for today's utilization, again, in a commercial population, there are five, six, seven areas that really matter. It's cancer, it's behavioral health, it's maternity and fertility, certain cardiovascular conditions, specialty pharmacy is an area that's really a ticking time bomb and every employer is trying to wrap their head around you know, a couple of others. Orthopedics is, a, is another big one. So it is much more about taking a surgical approach to how do we identify the top performing specialists, the top performing facilities? How do we negotiate for value? How do we create a member experience around that that's special and feels friction-free and, and great? And being extremely tight about the fact that there are things that might matter in a Medicare population around how do we treat expensive polychronic patients that really aren't going to move the needle in commercial. That, I think, is the biggest takeaway which is the data takes you to a different place. And because the data takes you to a different place, the tactics and the tools and the levers that a health plan that's completely focused on self-funded employers and their employees will deploy is going to be different from what one would do for a Medicare population or for an insured population. And what do you give the PCPs? So let's just take it to the next step. We've amassed this data and we have onboarded a PCP. What do we arm the PCP with and what is their charge? And and by that, I mean, what are we asking them to do? Stacey, that's, that's a great way of putting it. What is their charge? Because that's actually exactly what we tell the PCPs when we approach them. We say employers need you to be 
their agents of change when it comes to cost, when it comes to quality, when it comes to experience, their most valuable assets, the they being the employer, is their people, their associates. They need you to take care of them. They need you to steer them through the system well. They need you to steer them to the good docs, not the bad docs, to the right facilities, and obviously to avoid unnecessary care and complications. So the first thing that we do is say, are you willing? Are you willing to sign up to be part of that effort, to be the change agents on the front line of the healthcare system on behalf of employers and employees? And typically from primary care practitioners, the answer is a resounding yes. Primary care practitioners are used to being told that all the money is in the specialist categories, all the acclaim is if you're a specialist, you know, there's it's a challenging lifestyle. But folks typically have gone to primary care wanting to do the right thing, wanting to take care of people. So they love that message. So that's part one, is being a partner, being an agent of change. Part two is the contract. What our contract does is it's very nimble and it's very different from a typical big, long, complicated insurance contract. It's much more along the lines of you are a partner and so we're either going to win together or lose together. And so what we do because we are limiting the network to the very best based on verifiable data, the first thing we do is we pay well. We typically pay a little bit more. The second is beyond paying more upfront, we pay more for value. So value has a couple of sources. Value is based on how you refer. Value is based on how you prescribe to make sure you get efficiency and good clinical outcomes. Value is based on patient access. If you have a practice that is integrated virtual care where people can talk to their doc or their care team and not a random doc on a telemed service, there's value to that. And so we pay for that. If you have created a way for people to get integrated after hours coverage and not have to go to urgent care or the emergency room, we pay for that. If you have guaranteed access for same-day sick appointments or within 72 hours for specialist appointments, we pay for that. If you've invested in behavioral health and co-practicing so that mental health is part of physical health, we pay for that. The contract and the financial terms are meant to reward a way of practicing that really is all about how primary care should be, as opposed to trying to get the patient out in seven minutes because I need to see the next patient in order to keep up my practice economics. And then the final part is the data and the tools. Imagine a conversation where a doctor and a patient are saying, we need to think about where we send you downstream because you need to see an orthopedist. And in that conversation, the doctor can look at data real time and say, we ought to send them to one of these three specialists based on, again, verifiable data. And the patient can literally look at that dashboard in a different way and be able to not only see that clinical data, but also see their member experience or convenience, their ratings. And so that doctor-patient interaction, as opposed to a trust me, is now based on and built upon real verifiable data. Those are the three things, again, the partnership, the contract, and the financials supporting value, and the data and tools that we bring to the PCPs to help them do that job. It's almost like the holy grail to be able to determine who the high value physicians are. And many have tried. Is there some sort of learning or lesson that you have secret sauce, which you would be willing to share to, you know, help ascertain who are the high value specialists, for example? Like, how do you do that? These are easy to say things and hard to do things. There's not a bumper sticker, here's the secret sauce, but there's, you know, there's the hard work and, and effort and energy and experience around this to build the network the right way the first time. 
But there's two other things that I think are important. It's not only is it about building the network right the first time, but it's the agility to view the network as dynamic. It's easier for an entity like ours, which is newer, doesn't have incumbent relationships and practices that have to be protected, and doesn't have the weight of having to manage multiple networks for Medicare, for Medicaid, for commercially insured business. So what I mean by that is we can be much more focused from who gets in that network, and we can be much more agile around who should no longer be in that network based on iterative data, new information, new patient experience feedback, than an incumbent player for the very simple reason that an incumbent player is likely going to need that practice, that facility, that health system for some other part of their business. And it's a very difficult conversation to say, we want you in product A, but not in product B. I think a big part of it is there is work and effort that others have done that we're building upon to improve the refinement of how you choose that and build that high value network out of the gate. But as important is no different from any of us who've had to hire teams before or build organizations. You don't get it perfectly right when you do it the first time. The ability to improve, to move people around, to exit folks from your organization is really, really important. And that's the same philosophy that we need to take and we are taking to network build that unfortunately is just awfully hard to do for many of the players in the market today. Plans have a hard time even building a provider directory. It it just puts in perspective what you're talking about. This narrow network that we are discussing here, because obviously it's pretty narrow. You're focusing on the specialists and the providers that are delivering the highest quality care. And anytime you talk about a narrow network, as Eric Parmenter put it in his the conversation I had with him, you know, like, are we talking about an HMO and drag? <laughs> Every time someone looks at a network that has a thinner provider directory than what they're used to from Blue Cross or United Healthcare, it's by definition narrow. So let's acknowledge the obvious on that front. I think a big part of what we try to focus on is bringing a point of view that we're not narrowing or limiting for the sake of trying to get a better volume-based deal. We're not saying by taking out 50% of your competitors in the network, we want you to give us a 20% better rate. This is much more about let's set a bar. Let's set a bar that based on total cost of care, quality, patient experience, and patient access that we would be proud to send any of our family members to, that clinicians themselves would be proud to send any of their family members to. If everybody can reach that bar, that's fantastic. Then we get a broad network and everybody has raised their game. But the reality is all of the data shows there's incredible variation in cost and quality and limited correlation between the two. So we look at it as let's focus on the positive, let's focus on the highest performers, let's set the bar high, let's not limit it for the sake of limiting it, let's hope that we get everybody to raise their game. By doing that, that we're going to make the system better, not just for those who participate in this network, but frankly, for those uh, across the board. The other piece of it is we need to redefine the term access. So the reality is we have all become 
comfortable with the definition of access being the number of doctors in the network or the number of doctors within a 10-mile radius of your home. The reality is none of us need 40,000 doctors in our network. We need a small clinical team that we can count on and trust that we think can drive great results. And we need the ability to access the right care at the right time if, God forbid, something happens in our life, as simple or complicated as that might be. We really look at redefining access as changing the way you engage with the healthcare system, getting in easily if you need a physical visit, interacting with your clinicians and your care team easily if we can do it virtually over the phone through text, and being able to access the most important care when needed, if needed, in a way that doesn't have the barriers of a typical narrow network. Those are the principles that really drive our strategy And you're right. It is a complicated conversation to be able to orchestrate a network that truly isn't HMO and drag, but actually is a high performance network that raises the bar and raises everybody's game. And I don't know if you have found this in your experience, but it has been cited frequently that actually the highest value care, the highest quality providers actually winds up costing less. In that way, it's kind of a win-win across the board that you you get these high quality providers as opposed to having patients trial and error doctor shopping because they're trying to figure out who can diagnose them properly or who can make them feel better, who actually knows what the evidence-based medicine is. Clearly, that is driving a lot of cost in the process. Yeah, that's absolutely right. One of the opportunities for why we've come to this business with this point of view is when we were working with the private exchange business, you know, with large employers and seeing that carriers were coming to the table with networks that were the performance networks, the tier networks, the high value networks, but were for the most part organized around unit cost. And we really felt that there was a lost opportunity that if networks were organized around unit cost, but not total cost of care, not quality, not outcomes, that that was actually doing a penny wise pound foolish disservice to both the employer and the employee who would inevitably choose many of those networks based on price point alone. You've nailed it. How do you get to a place where total cost of care which might be the quote-unquote higher cost center or higher cost physician, but driving better total cost, not only because of the efficiency of their work, but the reduction in errors and avoidance of unnecessary care, avoidance of complications. And then the other benefit that I think we don't talk enough about on the healthcare side is that patient, if they are feeling better and healthier, is able to return to work earlier, is more productive, is more mentally engaged. There are so many economic benefits to employers for having happy, healthy employees that is well beyond the medical claims line alone. And that, I think, is one of the challenges that all of us in the industry have as to how do we do a better job quantifying the value of really good, high-quality healthcare for the whole enterprise beyond the medical claims line. And is this something that you can really only do at the plan level or can an ACO, a provider ACO, fulfill this mission? 
There are ACOs that are very high performing. Many of them are physician centered. Some of them are health system centered. In all cases, there really needs to be a leadership view around the world is changing. We need to move to value. This is about helping you know, drive total cost and participating in the gains of upside if we achieve our targets and suffering the losses of the downside if we don't. With that mindset and a real relentless focus on taking out capacity of the big fixed assets and focused on cheaper sites of care and focused on making sure that the right clinicians are doing the right procedures, health systems and ACOs can absolutely get there. The problem is a lot of them just aren't there. A lot of them are wedded to their fixed investments, to decisions that have been made, to the easy path, which is continuing to maximize revenue as opposed to thinking about the future and focusing on margin. There is a small set of well-organized, well-led ACOs who are going down the right path. There is a slightly larger set of folks who want to get there and acknowledge they're not there today, but know the future is there. So I look at those as partners. Those are partners in this effort to help bring more value to the employer and to the employee to focus on affordability and to focus on sustainability. Those will be the winners in this type of mix shift at the expense of those systems who continue to focus on filling the beds and filling excess capacity. Although you have to negotiate with those players. Just thinking of the New York City market, it is dominated by some pretty big, powerful players. How have you been able to negotiate or work with these gigantic entities that if you don't have them in your network, I mean, can you even have a plan and and not have some of these players in your network? They're just so pervasive in certain markets. It's not easy. <laughs> there, there is no rest for the weary uh, on that side, uh, for sure. But I, I do think it starts with our employers truly willing to embrace a different way of doing things. And our bet and my belief, and I'm heartened by conversations I have every day with employers, including a couple today, earlier today, that there is, it may not be the middle of the road employer but there is that right hand of 5 to 15% of the most progressive employers who have put a stake in the ground that the status quo must change. And the status quo must change cannot simply be lip service because as, as Einstein you know, so uh, intelligently said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. We go to the types of systems you've talked about and others basically saying, look, you need to believe that there are employers who are not accepting the status quo and are willing to change. If you believe that that's not really going to happen, then yeah, you know, we're probably not worth investing a lot of time in. But the flip side of it is if you do, do believe that that is the future and that some employers are going to get there quickly and others will see how that goes and join, join, get on the bus later, then we represent a fantastic opportunity to be that innovation partner, to test, to be ahead of the curve. And we're finding great success there. To answer your question directly, is every large system in every market, New York City or otherwise, going to be part of the performance network on day one? The answer is no. 
The answer is we're going to go to market with those partners who we feel like we can look employers in the eye and say, these are the folks who can credibly deliver upon affordability and quality. And if that means you're not comfortable with this because A, B, and C are not part of it, well, that means that we're not going to be able to achieve the results from an affordability and quality perspective. So you need to soul search, you know, Mr. or Ms. Employer on what your objectives truly are. And I feel pretty good. You know, we do have those early adopters on the employer side and we have the early adopters on the provider side. And that's how new futures are built, you know, with those early adopters. And I can really see from a patient perspective, if there is trust in the intent and, and the mission and, and how it's being operationalized, that it would be nice from a patient or employee perspective to know that almost that the care decisions that w- were being made are, are validated in, in a certain way, that there is some sort of backstop, if you will, to ensure that things don't go completely awry or stray too far from an evidence-based care plan. So th- it could be nice to have that reassurance. Yeah, I think we lose sight as benefits professionals as we get stuck in the weeds on broad networks and narrow networks and point solutions and different conditions, we lose sight of what really matters to the average American. I'm not talking about the CEO of a financial services firm, but the average person who works hard, two worker family, trying to get their kids through college and do the best they can. And the reality is they focus on three things when it comes to their healthcare decision. Number one, how much is it going to cost me both out of my paycheck as well as when I use care? Number two, Can I see either my doctor or if I don't have a doctor today, are there doctors that in this network that I know, I trust, that pass a bar of being good? And number three, if something really bad happens, am I going to be taken care of? Am I going to go bankrupt or am I going to not be able to see you know, some of the very best docs if, again, God forbid, something happens to me that's rare and complex? And we organize our whole plan around those three things. Make it affordable, both out of paycheck as well as at point of care. Number two, you know, make sure that we're partnering with primary care docs that everyone would be proud of, as we've talked about before. And number three, make sure that we're focused on when bad stuff happens, that nobody is going to go to human resources and say, I feel like this plan is withholding the kind of care that my doctor says is right for me. And we feel awfully good that if you hit those three questions, employees are going to love it. So far, as we've rolled out our first couple clients, those employees who have gone in and made a selection of our option versus other options, you know, we're seeing close to 50% of employees opting for this plan. So we're very bullish on the future if we stick to our guns on what really matters most to each and every person as being our moral compass for how we organize our product and our network. Was there anything that you were particularly surprised by? Like something happened and you're like, wow, didn't expect that. Yeah, I think on the maybe the the what's been more difficult than what we thought, I think there's a lot of complexity in healthcare. There are a number of physician groups and folks that we have targeted as saying, you guys are the emblem for what we want to be. You know, we want you to be the centerpiece of our network because you have great results, you have verifiable total cost of care. There's just a wonderful set of things that you're doing based on the data. And we want you to be in the center of this. And while they're certainly flattered, and while we expect most of them to be part of the network, you know, as, as we work through different markets, we are always surprised by a little bit of a, 
you know, I love what you guys are doing, but I have relationships. You know, I have, I get a lot of revenue from the big players. I have a lot of my patients coming through, you know, these big guys, and I need to really think about that. And, you know, on one hand, I'm never surprised by, you know, the status quo is a bear, but I did think that, again, there'd be maybe a little bit more openness from some of the physicians and providers to being part of something new to attack the problem that employers are deeply frustrated about than perhaps we've witnessed so far. And it could just also be the fear of change. It is always very difficult to and, and very frightening to, to move to new models. Where can people find more information about Centivo? Should they be interested in learning more? Thank you, Stacy, for that opportunity. The best way is our website, www.centivo.com. There's some contact us information right there. We'll be back to folks quickly. If either you're a employer, you're a potential partner from a healthcare delivery side, a technology side, a local plan, local network, or, or others that we work with, again, a lot more information on our website at www.centivo.com. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Ashok. Great. Thank you, Stacey. And thanks again to you and to your listening audience for your time. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.